So thank you very much. Good evening. Welcome to the, uh, our national conference here in Australia. It's a really great joy to, to be here with you and uh, spend this time to reflect upon what the Spirit is doing in the community here and uh, how it is calling us to, to share this gift of meditation, this gift of peace uh, with, uh, with the whole of Australia. And uh, I'd like to thank all of you uh, and the Australian community for the enormous contribution that you make in all sorts of ways uh, to the work of the world community uh, globally. And um, uh, we'll speak more about that uh, uh, tomorrow, I think. But in terms of, uh, of witness, I think there are more meditation groups here in Australia than anywhere in the world. Uh, in terms of, I think, the, well, really the, the, the joy and the collaboration and the, the, the energy of the community, very selflessly working together across this vast land and different states uh, to create a spirit of unity in sharing this gift. And in terms, of, very especially, of the of the people, the individuals who um, uh, serve the, 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 the world community globally. So thank you for, for that. And uh, it's been a great joy to me since I moved into Bonveau uh, at, at Easter to see how many Australians have already been coming to visit and stay and contribute to the, to the life uh, of, the, um, of our new centre, our new home uh, at Bonveau. So much to be grateful for and to thank you for. And uh, it, it's uh, not without some irony, I think, that I notice that the, the topic of uh, unity that we've taken should be opened here on Separation Street. <laughs> Separation gets everywhere, doesn't it? Yeah. But also, very, very touched and moved, as always, by the uh, acknowledgement of, of the land that takes place here in Australia and all our events. And it reminded me of uh, a visit I made uh, in one of my early, uh, early visits, really, to Australia, to Mount Isa up in Queensland. And uh, I gave a, a talk at the Catholic Church there and I spoke about the tradition of meditation and uh, this tradition that goes back 2,000 years to the teaching of Jesus. And uh, an Aboriginal uh, Catholic, I suppose, came up to me afterwards and thanked me and he said, you know, you speak about this 2,000-year-old tradition. He said, this is, he said, we, we come from a 40,000-year-old tradition. And he said, he gave a very profound reflection, really. It's always stayed with me. He said, my people have been contemplative and, and able to sit and be still and to listen. And he said, what my Christian faith has taught me is to respect and revere that, uh, that contemplative listening and tradition, which I think... Uh, Modern Australians are, are also learning to respect and learn from. 
And he said, but what my Christian faith has taught me is to understand what we have been listening to these 40 or so thousand years, which is the word of God sounding at the heart of creation. And I think that is a good way for us to open this conference, to remember that depth of tradition, the layers of consciousness that, uh, that we have inherited and that we, we, we develop and pass on. We're all part of a, a stream of consciousness, a stream of, of human evolution. And um, uh, a couple of months ago, I was in South Africa and near Johannesburg, I was, went out in, to, into the, the bush, to uh, or the savannah, to um, give some talks. And I realized I was in an area of uh, South Africa that is called the Cradle of Humanity. And it was where the very earliest humanoid fossils were discovered. And I was able to go into the, the cave where these, these fossils, uh, one set of them, three million years old, were, were discovered. And it, it reminds us that uh, we as Homo sapiens uh, have evolved from many, many layers of hum human evolution. I'm not sure how wise we actually are yet. We call ourselves wise. Um, but we, we, we need to be conscious, I think, of those at least seven steps, those seven stages through which uh, our human species have, uh, have, has evolved. And that sense of evolution is an important sense for us to have as we deal with the challenges of, our, of this period of our human, uh, cultural, political, economic, and spiritual uh, development and change. And perhaps the most important thing we need to remember in this in the challenges of this time is the unity that we share. That unity is the great mystery of humanity. Despite our racial, cultural, psychological, religious diversity, there is a core unity. And that unity is at the heart of the teaching of Jesus and at the heart of his aspiration for the humanity that he has helped us to understand. Christianity is much more than a, a morality, a series of moral principles, although very often Christians have just reduced the Christian mysteries to moral and uh, conventional uh, 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 dictates. Uh, we're much more than just a cultural, religious uh, identity. The mystery of Christianity is that it 
teaches humanity about itself through the person of Jesus. Not in an exclusive way, but in a way that reminds us of the unity that we are, that we not have, but that we are. And it's from his humanity that Jesus speaks these, these words uh, in his farewell discourse at the Last Supper. It is not for these alone that I pray, but for those also who through their words put their faith in me. So again, he's, he's looking ahead many generations from that moment in Jerusalem where he's celebrating his Last Supper with his disciples. May they all be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. So also may they be in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. So he's praying that the unity that exists between him and his Father, the word that he gives to describe the personal source of his being, with whom he is one, that that, uh, that unity that he has with his Father is the same unity that we have among ourselves as human beings and that we have in him the same unity, the same consciousness, if you like. But also that the realization of that unity is the actual sign and witness of who he is. Because the world will see that unity lived out among us. We'll talk about how successful we've been in that so far. But that unity which we live among ourselves, dealing with our conflicts, with our diversity and differences of, uh, at, at all levels, that that unity, as we live it, is the sign that authenticates our faith in him. It, it tells the world that he came from the Father. That puts a pretty big responsibility on us with regard to the way we live that unity. The glory which you gave me, I have given to them. Remember what St. Irenaeus says about glory, the glory of God. It's not that we glorify God by telling God how great he is or building great empires or cathedrals uh, to, his, uh, to his glory. According to St. Irenaeus, the glory of God is the human being who is fully alive. And he goes on to add, the life of the human being is the vision of God. And this phrase, the vision of God, it was 
one of the phrases that, that caught the attention and touched the hearts and awakened the spiritual uh, life of the, of the early church. What does it mean to see God? So the glory of God is when we allow ourselves to fulfill the potential of the being and of the life that we have received as pure gift uh, from God. So the glory which you gave me, the fullness of life which he has received, he has given to us. How do you give fullness of life to another person? By the gift of yourself. How do you give everything that you have to the children you love or the grandchildren you love or to the friends that you love or to the world that you love? It's not something you can write a check for. It has to be a gift of self and of a gift of self that is selfless, that demands nothing in return, not even gratitude, no strings attached, no conditions, pure gift. The fullness of the human being is when we are able to give that gift of self to another. And yet how rare that is. And we might say it's really impossible. How often is it possible for one human being to give themselves or to give anything to another without some lurking, hidden uh, attachment? without some sense that I'm going to get something back in return, even if it's a sense of, you know, pride or satisfaction that I, I have made this gift. Well, we might easily become cynical about that and say that it's essentially impossible for a human being to give that gift of self. And yet again, in, in, the, in, the, in the vision of the Gospel, which constitutes Christian identity, Christian faith, in the vision of the gospel, we see that being done. We see in Jesus the possibility of a totally selfless gift of, of self. And what happens when that gift of self is transmitted, when it's laid down, when you lay down your life for another person? What happens is, is that the person to whom you are giving, making this gift of self, is changed, redeemed, enhanced, empowered with the awareness that they too could do this, that it's possible, because I have received it. It seems almost unbelievable that I should have received this gift of self from another. And yet it has happened. Maybe it takes years to realize that it has happened. Maybe it's hard for us to believe that we could be worthy of receiving that gift of self from another person. And we have all sorts of 
personal evolutionary layers of consciousness that resist it or deny it. But eventually, the truth of that gift of self overcomes those forces of resistance and denial. So the fullness of life which you gave me, I have given to them. How does he give that fullness of life, of self, in a selfless way? Through the Spirit. The gift of the Spirit, the sending of the Spirit, that that continuous transmission of the Spirit, not just on Pentecost Sunday morning, but continuously through all the encounters of our lives. So the fullness of life which you gave me, I have given to them, so that they may be one, as we are one. And again, he identifies that unity of himself with the source that he calls Father, with the unity that we experience here on earth, here today. I in them and you in me, sort of folded into one. I in them and you in me, may they be perfectly one. So the prayer here, his aspiration, his longing, is that the unity that he knows with the Father should bring us to the perfection of unity, of oneness. Then the world will know that you sent me and that you loved them as you loved me. And what's amazing about this, these words, these extraordinary words that have transformed human religious consciousness, the great evolutionary moments of, of human religious experience is contained in these words, or the words signify what is happening, is, is, the, is that the point being made is not just a description of the relationship between Jesus and, and, and God, but that this is directed towards us, towards the human. That it's, he's saying this because he wants us to know, to understand what unity means. And we begin to understand the, the full uh, unlimited wonder of what he's saying by the way we begin to live it out among ourselves, the human struggle. So we don't do unity, but we are unity. And we are unity by knowing that we are one. But it's not just theological knowledge or intellectual knowledge, or it's not an ideology. It is contemplative knowledge. We can only know this in contemplative consciousness. Contemplative consciousness which itself transcends the, 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 the dualism of, of the ego.
contemplative consciousness or contemplative knowledge, which means that we know from within this experience of unity. You can't know it from the outside. I mean, we can, we're talking about it now, so we're talking about it as if we are talking about something and trying to understand it, trying to analyze it, trying to make sense of it. But that isn't knowing it. Knowing it means that we have to enter into a silence in which this, non, this dualistic mind is, as it were, left behind or integrated. So this is contemplative knowledge, not dogma or politics. It's a knowledge that arises not from speculative thinking, but from the experience of oneness itself, which is, very simply, the experience that we turn towards, that we allow ourselves to taste every morning and every evening as we sit in meditation, and every time when we bring meditation to children and meditate with them for five minutes, or every time that we bring meditation to the dying or to the homeless or to those suffering from addiction or to those struggling with stress and anxiety in the business world. So every time that we, we bring this gift of meditation to others, we are and meditate with them. That's why you can't teach meditation without meditating at the same, at, you know, in order to teach. Every time we do that, this is the knowledge that we are growing in and the sharing of the gift of meditation in this way, which is the work of our community, is the way, major way, in which we deepen and expand and communicate this knowledge. So there would be little point in talking about meditation if we weren't meditating. And the community itself would be a bit of a superficial, a bit of a facade, unless it was being generated and reborn every day through the personal practice of each one of us here. John Main believed that meditation <coughs> creates community. You've heard that many times. I say it many times. And it never ceases to fascinate me because I live it every day in my life. And I see, you know, when I travel and to different parts of our community, I see it at work in the life of the new community taking shape in Bonveau. So I know that meditation creates community, not a perfect community, a community of love, yes, but love can be difficult too. But it's a real, it's a real insight and a very important message for our troubled and divided world that here is a simple, universal, 
at least 40,000 years old. Here is a simple wisdom that can be practiced by every kind of person that awakens in us this knowledge of unity. And it's out of that experiential knowledge that community comes. The community is only an, an, a visible form of that unity that we're talking about. May they be one. Well, if we are one, when human beings come together in that knowledge of unity, their interaction, their reflection on what they're doing, their understanding of how this is something that should be shared with other people, that's what makes community. Community is not an end in itself. Community is the flower or the manifestation or the breaking, the breaking, of the, uh, the breaking out into the visible and tangible world of this experience of unity. So this is what we mean by, I think, contemplative consciousness. And why contemplative consciousness is this knowledge of unity that the world craves for, hungers for, thirsts for, and needs most urgently today. And we're all well aware of the problems that we face at this point in human evolution. Why is it? It seems to have happened very quickly. It wasn't long ago, you know, 20 years ago, when the Berlin Wall came down and we were told by the <coughs> some of the philosophers that history is now finished end of history. We have now achieved the triumph of liberal democracy and of a free economic system. We've, we've got it made. We know how to do it. It didn't last very long, did it? It's almost as if the liberal democracies needed the demonized enemy of communism to be able to maintain some measure of decency and uh, and order and stability. Without that enemy, we need enemies much of the time, just as we need friends, psychologically. Without that enemy, we began to fall apart. The unity we had in the face of an enemy, the communist threat or whatever, uh, that unity was not a real unity because otherwise it would, have, it, would have, it would have survived. So, we're thrust back into another phase of our evolution and we discover how ununified we are, how far away we are collectively from this, this truth of our human nature that Jesus reveals and affirms that we are one, that we can be one, that we are essentially one, despite appearances. 
he affirms that this is our true nature. So don't give up on it, he's saying. If he's praying for it, it's because it is real, not because it's an ideal, but because it's the truth of our nature. And it's hard to uh, maintain that hope, that truth, and that positive sense of the goodness of human nature, the oneness of human nature, the, capa the capacity of human beings for divine, uh, divine consciousness, the, the possibility that human beings can love, can forgive, can be just, can refrain from violence. Very hard to believe in that divine nature of humanity, or divine potential of humanity, when we, uh, when we see how we behave and the uh, failures of the leaders that we frighteningly sometimes seem to deserve. So this is where we are, and this is where the church is at the moment in this, uh, in this crisis, crisis of hope, crisis of faith. There's so, so many of the structures that we felt secure in, politically, religiously, economically, dissolving and collapsing around us. And this is why we need this contemplative consciousness more urgently than ever, and why we need both to respect our indigenous traditions, because they remind us of how ancient and how deep and essential this contemplative wisdom is. And we also need, as Christians, to see it as the heart and soul of our own tradition. Is meditation Christian? Well, we should know by now that it is. So this is what we mean by contemplative consciousness. And all the troubles of the world arise from division, from the loss or the denial of unity. And when division has triumphed, violence will inevitably follow. And the violence that, div that division leads to is terrible and uncontrollable. And we see it recurring <coughs> again and again. We see it now happening uh, in, in, uh, in Turkey and in, in Syria with the with the attacks on the Kurds. It just never seems to stop, does it? Separation, distinction, uh, being different is not the same as division. Separation happens right at the beginning of the, of the human story, in the book of Genesis, when uh, the human decides to separate themselves from their 
that stage of their evolutionary relationship to God, when they eat the fruit of the tree of, of, of knowledge, of the knowledge of good and evil. So, just in the same way that your adolescent children separate from parents and grandparents and family in order, often painfully, to become mature, to make their own relationships, to discover who they are uniquely. Separation is part of growth, part of evolution, part of development. You can't move from one layer to another without separation from the past. But no act of separation happens without it leaving a scar, a painful wound in the human psyche. Separation hurts. Even separation from what you don't like sometimes hurts because you've got used to it and then you're frightened of, of what comes next. You're looking forward to retirement and then you become retired and then you don't go into the office the next day and you think, oh my God, what's the meaning of my life? So separation, even when it is something you desire healthily, can still be painful. But separation is not the same as division. Conflict, even, does not destroy unity. We live with conflict all the time because differences rub up against each other. Personalities, different personalities, even among those who love each other deeply, uh, create friction and disagreement and misunderstanding. So conflict is not the end of unity either, nor is separation. What destroys unity is division. And division, as the word suggests, is diabolical. It splits. The intention to divide, to divide and conquer the political game that unscrupulous people can play, either in family politics or in global politics, that intention to divide and conquer cannot be of God cannot be in harmony with the true nature of things because God is one. It's the great affirmation of the, of the three great sister religions, that God is one. God is not fragmented into a pantheon of, of little gods competing with each other, which are projections of our own imagination and desires or fears. But the three great sister religions, for all their differences and conflicts, have understood together and, and grow out of the same profound insight into human and divine nature that God is one. So the intention to divide and conquer the other is not divine but diabolical. 
It's actually the denial of God. It's a blasphemy. And what could be more blasphemous and obscene than to invoke a religious blessing on human violence in whatever form? We can ask forgiveness when we, when we drop bonds on, on our enemy. We can ask forgiveness afterwards, but we can hardly ask a blessing on the act of destruction and division. The refusal to serve the unity of the one destroys our humanity and makes us act less than human. The work of meditation is the work of being and becoming fully human, discovering the glory of God in us, the unity of God in us and, of course, among us. This work of meditation is not an escape from the, the bad news of the world or our problems and our difficulties in life. It's not just about relaxation. It's not about creating an alternative reality that we can step into. You know, meditation is not the same as Netflix. Meditation is the work of unity that we enter into humbly and faithfully, even in the midst of the disunity within ourselves or between ourselves and of a divided and, 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 and confused world. We don't meditate in an, in an ideal space. We meditate in this world, at this time of history, in this civilization. And meditation doesn't solve our problems. I wish it did. You know, if you have fundraising to do for Bonveau before meditation, you have to do the fundraising afterwards as well. <laughs> if you have an issue with your family or a relationship before meditation, you'll have to deal with it afterwards as well. The difference, of course, is a very big difference before and after meditation. Because after meditation, even if it was a very agitated and difficult meditation, you come to the problems of, of your life and the divisions that you have to cope with in your life, you come to those problems with hope reminded of what Jesus is communicating in this great prayer that reminds us of who we are and what our potential is and of what the human being is called to be. So where does this deep unity of the human being come from? God within us. Christ in us, St. Paul says. This oneness within ourselves, within our nature, which is the only way 
that we can heal the wounds of violence and division and at least reduce and never give up trying to eliminate the forces of division. Well, this is the great mystery of our humanity. It is our longing for absolute good for God. This longing for the absolute good, for the real, for the one, is omnipresent. We find it in every human being. And nothing can satisfy this longing, no ambition, no success, no pleasure, no great project, no desire fulfilled can satisfy this longing for the absolute good except oneness itself, except unity itself, except God's own self. Now this longing, this hunger for God can seem very distant, very unreal, very unrelated to daily affairs. It can even seem absurd. And for many people in our materialistic uh, culture, uh, it just, just seemed that, a bit of a fantasy. Maybe a good fantasy, but a, a fantasy, because it's not of this world. And true, it isn't of this world. But this denial of the longing for peace, the longing for the absolute good, the hunger for love, let's say, all of these are manifestations of the same human need and hunger for God. That can be denied, but if we deny it or dismiss it or we mock it, and reject it, this rejection, this mocking, prevents us from being one, from being human. And it condemns us to further and further division. What I mean is that in a, 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 in a culture or in a belief system, and it's a very dominant belief system in our world, that this, this longing is ultimately only a limited desire for well-being, not for absolute oneness, not for the, what we would call the transcendent oneness of God. If we limit our human potential in this way, 
we are really condemning ourselves to repeating the pattern of division indefinitely. And interestingly enough, some of the, some of the, the most materialistic and uh, atheistic philosophers of the 20th century, who began by really feeling that human evolution would benefit from the destruction of religion or the withering away of religion, began to change their mind as they saw the consequences of increasing aggressive secularization. And someone like uh, Jürgen Habermas, for example, believed this at the beginning of his life of thought. In the middle of his life, he came to conclude, actually, religion does have an important, valuable role to play in society. Because without it, uh, human relations uh, and human self-awareness um, are damaged. But by the end of his life, the time that he did this uh, famous dialogue with Pope Benedict, he came to an even greater uh, evolution of his own thinking by recognizing that the fulfillment of the human person depends upon this dimension of faith as well. When we teach meditation from the Christian tradition, we are not trying to convert people to Christianity. For those who are already blessed with Christian faith, we share this with them as a way of, that we have found to deepen that faith, to deepen that experience of unity with Christ, and, and to enrich and diversify the experience of community we have with others. When we teach meditation as Christians to non-Christians, as we are doing through our meditatio outreach, whether it's to the homeless or to doctors or to business people and increasingly uh, in schools, when we teach meditation as Christians, but to a non-religious world, we are not trying to convert them to Christianity. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. I think what we're doing is a work of evangelization because we're witnessing to our own faith very strongly, we're not hiding it, but we're sharing this gift of oneness, of peace, of love that we have found in our own daily practice we're sharing it with others because we're human beings like you. We know what you're looking for. And this is what we, what we have found in our finding. That is a different approach, for example, from mindfulness. And as mindfulness has in some ways opened up the, the field of our secular world to meditation, in a very promising way, and I have no problem with mindfulness, or I'm not competing with it, and I'm not condemning it or criticizing it, actually. But 
I think it's very important that we understand the distinction between them. It doesn't mean division, but it does mean a, 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 a separation of understanding of what we are doing. I don't think we are ever going to compete in terms of uh, mass markets with, uh, with mindfulness. That's not what we're about. We're a little bit of salt, a little bit of leaven. So that's God's work. But for us to do what we are called to do with integrity and with confidence and with passion, because this is a very important gift, the gift of meditation, to share, the gift of unity to share with others wounded and damaged in a violent world, it's very important that we understand the context in which we're doing it. Some of my Buddhist friends, Buddhist teacher, teachers uh, that I know, uh, have concerns about mindfulness, the way it's taught, because as Buddhists, they, they are concerned that uh, it, has, it has taken a certain uh, body of, uh, of teaching and of, of practices, techniques, out of their context, the original context, and put them into a very secularized, it's okay, but a very secularized kind of consumer com co commodity world. Of course, you also pay for it. And the problem they have with that is that it's not really what the Buddha meant. For example, you can teach mindfulness to a, a sniper in the American military, which is actually what they do. You can be, a, you know, in those terms, you could be a mindful sniper or a mindful jewel thief or a, a mindful, uh, you know, uh, speculator on the, on the markets. And again, I'm not, I'm not using this to, to get at them or to, or to, because I know they also do a great deal of good when people are desperate, when they're stressed out, and they don't seem to be able to find this oneness within themselves in the church or in religious uh, organizations. And uh, then who can blame them for, for going to drink to satisfy their thirst in whatever well they can find? And clearly, people have benefited greatly, uh, but to a limited extent, but greatly from, from these secular forms of contemplative practice, often, as I say, extracted from their spiritual framework. But we should understand the difference, important difference. I was actually talking to the Archbishop here just a few minutes ago. Why is it that, for example, Catholic schools, I know we're not all Catholics here, but let's just talk about Catholic schools. We're in a Catholic school. Why is it that Catholic schools are importing mindfulness? Somebody wrote to me recently and said, are we so spiritually bankrupt that we have to do this? Well, that's a good question. I asked it to the Archbishop of Westminster. I got an immediate reply. And uh, we're working with the diocese now to bring meditation in, into the school system there. And what's the difference then? 
An important question that was raised by one of our great uh, uh, Australian teachers in our community, Sarah Bachelard, who gave the John Main Seminar in uh, Canada earlier this year on contemplative Christianity. I hope you've all listened or intend to listen to her talks, which are online. One of the important questions she asked was the question that she says many people are asking today. Isn't meditation, why not just meditate? Isn't meditation enough? Why bringing faith, Christianity, or even Buddhist belief, or any other belief? Why not just meditate? Good question. And in one sense, you could say, sure, it's okay. You will get certain benefits from just meditating. It will lower your blood pressure. It will reduce your stress. You may sleep better at night. It won't restore your hair, but it will do lots of other things. <laughs> Make you feel better. And that's good. It's good to feel good. However, you hit a glass ceiling when you approach meditation only for the benefits, the personal benefits you get from it for yourself. The essence of meditation, and this is something that must have been the seed of the knowledge of unity from the dawn of human consciousness and becomes explicit in this teaching of Jesus. When you meditate, you are taking the attention off yourself. You're going beyond an exclusive concentration upon yourself and upon the benefits you might gain. And the experience of oneness, of unity, inevitably involves being with others. And we can only be with others when we have taken the attention off ourselves. So this, let's call it, this principle of transcendence, which Jesus says, leaving self behind, what John Mayne calls taking the attention off yourself as you say the mantra. This is the essence of meditation. And the full potential of this wisdom of meditation is limited, is constricted or denied if we approach it only in terms of getting the benefits that I want for myself, even though they may be good benefits. How then, this is a question for us as a community of Christ, for Christian meditation, how can we share this gift with its full depth of wisdom that opens us to the full potential of our human flourishing and the being the glory of God? How can we communicate this to others? Well, I... Well, I do know, I don't know. We are discovering. As a community, we are growing in understanding and we've grown over the last 40 years a great deal in how we do that. And Australia has, has in many ways led, led uh, has, has contributed much to the leadership of that, of that search, not least in the bringing of meditation to schools. So I hope in this conference, uh, we can continue 
to explore what the Spirit of God is doing in us as a community here in Australia, here in your, in your weekly meditation groups and globally and through Bombo and all the other amazing elements uh, that make up our community. And I hope that by our friendship together, by our enjoying each other's company, by our listening to what is happening uh, in each other's uh, patch, and by sharing with each other the, um, how the, 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 the challenges that we encounter in sharing this gift, I hope that we will all evolve, uh, that our community will be enriched and, and filled with some deeper wisdom, shared wisdom, and uh, we'll, that we will be able to fulfill the, the calling uh, that, we, that we have and that we are trying with many limitations, but that we are trying to respond to as fully as we can. So, of course, the question is, this longing, this hunger for God, this longing for, for unity, that is our greatest hope to take us through this present crisis. How do we satisfy it? How do we realize it? Simply, I think, by paying attention to it. And that's what we'll do now as we take our time of meditation together. with that pure, selfless attention, which is love. When we meditate, as we say our word, this is the way that you follow, we follow, we are in fact learning to love. We're not practicing a technique. We are being a disciple putting into practice the teaching of our master, of our teacher. And in saying the mantra, far from just practicing a technique, we are leaving self behind, as a disciple should, in a pure and selfless act of attention. It is, it is of the same order of attention or love that a parent brings or feels for their child. And just as a parent may, will love their child, but at times be irritated by it, at times, you know, not maybe feel all the, all the full force of, of their love, but having to deal with many other issues in the home and in life, so in the same way we come to meditation, we don't always feel this is the work of love we're doing. We've got a lot of, a lot of stuff going on in our heads and our feelings and we feel, we feel distracted, we feel disengaged, we feel uh, maybe discouraged at times. But in the same way that a, a parent knows that they love their child, 
we know with deeper and deeper knowledge that this is the work of love. And it's bringing us into a unity where God's love for us becomes our love for God. We're only able to love God because God has loved us into consciousness. It's the same kind of attention that an artist has for beauty, or a doctor for the mystery of healing that happens in the therapeutic relationship, or of a teacher for, the, for helping to realize the potential of their students. It's that kind of attention that we bring to our meditation. We're not just meditating to feel better. We're meditating to be, become the glory of God. And it's God's love for us that empowers us to do this work. <clears throat> 